When I think of misconnections, I tend to think of the ones you see on Craigslist, like, you were my waitress at Denny's and you smiled at me a lot, and I assume this is because you found me attractive and not because it's your job, but I was too chicken to ask for your number, so I'm posting on Craigslist in a vain hope that you will see this. And love me. Anyway, it's, it's usually someone regretting something that could have been something that presumably could have been great, like the love of their life, or maybe just a good time. So I'm telling a story about something that could have been, but it's probably a good thing that it never was. You're listening to the Second Page Storytelling Show on WOBC 91.5 FM, Overland College and Community Radio. I'm your host, Harris Laparoff. Each week, I bring you a collection of stories on a theme. This week's theme is Missed Connections. You're listening to Hillary Carter with our first story for the hour. at summer camp. This was the year before the one where I met Walrus Boy, if you remember one of my earlier stories. I was 18, and a few months earlier I had wrecked a relationship with a friend by developing a crush on him, and when he didn't seem terribly interested, I managed to successfully drive him away with a combination of creepy internet stalking and talking behind his back, so I wasn't feeling all that great about myself. I was about to start my day off, which was for 24 hours, starting at 6 p.m. Also off that day was Sarah, the camp nurse, and my fellow counselors, Tristan and Luke. We were waiting outside the dining hall with the campers for dinner, since we, you know, might as well have one last free meal. I was leaning against the fence when Tristan and Luke approached me, sounding very excited. Hey, Hillary, did you have any plans for your day off? Luke always grinned and looked right at me in a creepy way. He was just creepy in general. He constantly talked about the female counselors in terms of how hot they were and about how long it had been since he had gotten any. I was just planning to drive home to Boston, I said. You should come to Boston with us. We're going to get a hotel room and get some beer. It will be awesome. We're going to leave after dinner in Luke's car. Tristan, on the other hand, was my secret crush. He was cute, funny, charming, and... Canadian, so, you know, how can you go wrong? But what do you do when both your most favorite person and your least favorite person want to spend time with you in a private setting? I was also very much a good girl at the time, and I was not comfortable with drinking. Um, I don't know. I live in Boston. It seems kind of silly to sleep in a hotel room. Please, you know you want to come. Oh my god, be more of a creep, Luke. Sarah's coming with us. You won't be the only girl. I was sure Luke was excited about that. He had talked a lot about how hot the nurse was. I don't know. I don't really drink. You don't have to drink. We'll just be drinking. Give me one good reason not to go. I'd kind of just like to sleep in my own bed. 
You guys can have the beds. We'll sleep on the floor. I was also too much of a cheapskate to want to pay for a hotel room in a city that I live in, but I can't remember if I actually said that. Anyway, this continued until we went in for dinner. Afterwards, I snuck out of the dining hall just to get some stuff from my cabin, but they found me and ran to catch up with me and continued to plead with me until the road forked and they went to the parking lot and I went up to my cabin. But I ran into them one last time as they were driving away with Sarah in tow. Luke pulled up right beside me. Last chance. We have candy. Luke threw a Twix bar out the window at me. I flinched as it bounced off my shoulder, and he laughed. I picked it up and threw it back at him. Tristan thought that was pretty funny. Seriously, Hillary, please. I promise it will be fun, and you won't have to drink. He smiled his adorable Canadian smile. Why did Luke have to have the same day off? Then I had an idea. Hey, maybe I could just drive myself to Boston and then meet up with you guys and hang out for a while. Luke was creepy and annoying, but I still really wanted to hang out with Tristan. And maybe Luke would be too busy hitting on Sarah to bother me too much. But would you stay the night? Luke insisted. No, I said decidedly. I'm telling you, you're missing out, he said. And then he drove away. I didn't have phone numbers for any of them, so I assumed that meant that if I was not going to spend the night, I was not welcome. At the time, I felt kind of sad and lonely, and like maybe I hadn't made the right decision. A combination of my low self-esteem and Naivete allowed me to dismiss what is now obvious. He had wanted me to go and get drunk so he could take advantage of me, probably. Tristan ended up getting together with another female counselor later in the summer, and I often wondered if I'd gone with them that night, if maybe I would have had a chance with him instead. There were rumors that Luke had hooked up with Sarah that night, despite the fact that she had a boyfriend, so maybe Luke would have left me alone. But I think this story makes it pretty obvious that Luke had a tough time accepting reluctance and even a straight-up no. He got fired later that summer, I think, for being generally incompetent, but maybe for something else that they wouldn't tell us about. So this is one opportunity that I'm pretty glad I missed. Hillary Carter is an Oberlin College graduate from the class of 2009 and the second page's most consistent contributor. We're going to have two parts to our show this week. Part one, the part that you're listening to now, is Missed Connections. Part two will be from the cutting room floor, or stories that miss their connections. Every once in a while, we just don't have time to air all of the stories that we receive, so this week we'll air a couple of the stories that didn't make it onto the show. Stay tuned for that. But first, our next story this hour about Missed Connections from Lucy Potter. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, 
Oberlin College and Community Radio. Since graduating college, I've gone on many, many dates. Coffee dates, lunch dates, movie dates, dinner dates, hiking dates, internet dates. Uh, It was after one of these dates that this story starts. Now, this date wasn't particularly notable, except for the fact that it was particularly bad. In fact, I was berating myself for taking the time on a weeknight to go to the city for something so utterly mediocre when I realized that the train I was on was heading home and not to my car, which was parked across town. Usually using said car to get me anywhere, I had no idea where to transfer, so like a tourist in my own town, I sheepishly turned to my neighbor, interrupted his reading, and asked for directions. I was relieved when, admitting he was a local too, he took out his smartphone to give me an answer. Laughing over our uh, reliance on technology, we began talking about school and astrophysics and the classical Mediterranean and uh, future plans and present worries and, oh wow, here's that transfer station. Good luck with everything. I thought about this encounter a lot, um, even when I went to go meet my friend, my good friend for a late dinner, uh, I talked more about this 15 minute conversation than, um, you know, the date that she had wanted me to talk about. And thoughts of this young man on public transportation followed me home. Now my good friend, the one I had grabbed dinner with, uh, she is somehow in tune with all those quirky internetisms, like, you know, blogs about your upstairs neighbor's inappropriately loud conversations or um, single strip comics with fairy tales depicted in modern light or Craigslist missed connections. Despite the fact that I'd always kind of seen the site as a, you know, sorry sacrifice of dignity to the internet gods in the hopes of being a little less lonely, I found myself on the site that evening literally found myself. I was right there, three posts down. The subject line read, you classicist, me, pretentious jerk. It was unmistakable and unbelievable. We hung out the next night. It was his last night in town before he was whisked off on a grand tour of the astrophysics grad programs he'd been accepted to. And it was the best date I had had in a long while. We walked and talked and showed each other our favorite locations in a mutual hometown until, like a subway ride, the night had to come to an end. We parted ways, promising to keep in touch. Unfortunately, the coming months saw my life a little bit more complicated than before. I had taken two more jobs and was working busy six-day work weeks, and I had also started seeing someone new. And while we weren't exclusive at the time, it was kind of looking like it was going to head that way. So on the day that I had scheduled to reunite with my missed connection, my body had refused to wake up with my alarm and I had overslept work by an hour and a half. Calling in the sick day I knew I needed but regretted having to take and allowing myself a substantial amount more rest, I called my missed connection later that day. 
but it wasn't the same. Uh, either the moment had passed or my heart wasn't as available as it once had been for whatever reason. Um, I just remember lying there watching this man catnap with his arm over my belly and fingers tangled in my belt loops, wondering what was missing. Needless to say, we lost touch after that. And at the time, I thought that was the end of it. But a couple months and a few potential suitors later, I found myself uh, visiting friends in Santa Cruz. We had made plans that night to go out, and those were quickly falling apart. So in order to salvage the evening, my friends took me to a bar that they had, like, totally different bar than they had totally, than they had originally thought they would go to. And I walked in, and there he was, my missed connection, beer in hand, staring as incredulously at me as I must have been at him. And there was a little bit of playful but genuine confusion over who had last texted whom, after which we were joined at the hip for the rest of the night. Though, I admit, thoughtful discussion wasn't as prevalent on our minds as in previous encounters. And that is the end of the story. There's nothing else. Well, I'm sure there's something else. He went off to an Ivy League graduate program, and I stayed where I was and went on other adventures, but that's the end of this story. But I think the lessons I've learned have persisted beyond that connection. I think what I get from the whole situation is how rare and improbable and beautiful a connection between two human beings really is. I mean, if you think about it, a popular person might say they have hundreds of friends, but there are billions of people living on this planet. And that means that this popular person has made a connection with a fraction of a percent of all humanity. But that's still an amazing feat. I go on misconnections more often these days, and I um, don't view it as aesthetically. I'll say, <laughs> as I once did. I use it more um, to celebrate the tendency human beings have to reach out despite the odds, despite everything in the way. They still try to make connections with one another, and I think that's wonderful. Since graduating college, I have gone on many dates, and through these and other vehicles I've made connections with people I thought I never would have, and through these and other vehicles I've also lost connections with people I thought I'd always have. And through everything, I think what I've learned can be boiled down to don't regret the connections that aren't. It's not your fault. There's so many, so many things in the way but instead cherish the ones you have, or you'll miss them. And there's no such thing as too little too late, unless you do nothing at all. Lucy Potter is a friend of mine from my Berkeley days. She graduated from UC Davis with the indecisive double major of biology and classics. She spends her spare time daydreaming.
Our next story this hour from Mike Rauscher. Now, I'm a sucker for what we'll call a good gender essentialism story. Uh, you know, like uh, in Genesis or the various sci-fi takes on it with intrepid space explorers, Adam and Eve, or uh, Ragnarok, the Norse death of the gods, and that titanic struggle where the world is flooded and then repopulated by a single man and a single woman, or uh, Zardoz uh, with the giant flying head in the 70s, and uh, Sean Connery in a red diaper. And uh, in all of these, there's this sort of complementary masculine and feminine omni-being, and they're uh, a whole cosmos unto themselves. Now, I know, I know, I should be ashamed of myself for being into this. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm all on board for building a world that has destroyed gender and smashed the patriarchy and solvated all these bankrupt cultural narratives and liquefied the machinery of gender and sexuality and exalted in an expressive world of empowered radical androgynes and all that. I'm all down for that, but uh, in the meantime, I have to admit, I just can't help myself sometimes for having a favorable aesthetic sense for the stuff. Uh, these are my original sins in the court of social justice, and in fairness, these sins are the groundwork for most of the misconnections uh, this show is about as they are conceived of on the internet. Uh, so, like I said, I'm a sucker, and uh, of course I got hung up on one of these kinds of stories when it happened to me in the first person last summer, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania where the hills and the bridges and the tunnels and the overpasses and the rivers and the rail cuts all make for the best place in the whole world for someone with my particular bicycle pathology. Uh, the sun was going down, and I was peeling up the strip, which is the market district behind downtown, and there's a flat bit by the Allegheny River. And uh, Pittsburgh has, of course, suffered every evil neoliberalism has to offer it in its transformation from the industrial steel city of the first Gilded Age to the unholy nexus of computer science, finance, capital, and redundant hospital systems it is in today's second Gilded Age. But the strip can sometimes be one of those places that hasn't quite lost its character yet to urban renewal and gentrification corridors. Uh, the, the haze still hangs here from the era when money represented real, tangible things instead of being a tumor in society, just like the idealized genders I am beholden to. Now, what's up with all this internet Marxism? Well, you see, not much actually happened in the story, so I have to paint you a picture of what it felt like, and not everyone happens to be from Pittsburgh. And uh, at that particular time of day, and in that time of the year, the strip was a proletarian canvas, and the bicycle drawn on this canvas is transcendent into the threatening exaltation of youth and motion and violence um, that favors in the art of the futurists and the fascists. And that's another aesthetic of ultimate evil that I'm beholden to, just like the gender essentialism story, and uh, both of those actually routinely get put together in any serious discussion of giant robots, but that's a subject for another radio show. So, now that we have that picture, I'm zazzing up the strip, and I divert a block away from the river onto Liberty Avenue, no man's land, where there's a tight shoulder, and it's a throughway for automobiles exclusively, and I'm running in place and oscillating my bicycle along its long axis and easily clocking 17 miles an hour, and there's a woman on a cargo bicycle two blocks up. And she is just as fast, and just as powerful, and just as willing to take the lane as buses and trucks as they're passing mere inches to our left. 
So, needless to say, I'm intrigued, uh, but uh, I cannot say hello because, uh, to paraphrase Vonnegut, the moment was simply not structured that way. The social micro-terrain was wrong in all sorts of ways. Uh, but in order to um, placate the immediate and intractable desire to know her better, even just a little, well, I, I have to pass her and look straight ahead and pretend she is one of the cars so as not to be a creeper or anything, because uh, real life is not a gender essentialism story, and the cultural context has given me the weaponized male gaze and not her. And even if she wouldn't really mind, uh, I wouldn't want to play that part. So I peek up the pace some more, and I'm pedaling as fast as I possibly can, and of course to intercept and overtake, and I do. And in my peripheral micro-glimpse, I see what I hoped to see, the agreeable entanglement of another bicyclist who pedals with a high-specific violence. That's a fake engineering term I use for the way the bike moves with its own uh, internal purpose in defiance of its own inertia. She has her hair tucked functionally in her helmet and tattoos embellishing a laborer's shoulders, a cargo milk crate bungeed to her heavy bicycle frame, determination and agency blossoming. She is perfect. And of course, I have to keep pedaling now, uh, this fast, uh, since I've overtaken her, because if I slow up even a minute, I'll have committed another sin. I will have appeared to have passed her out of some stupid machismo insecurity thing, instead of because I was curious to see her. And my shame abounds, and I am overtaken with the soft violence I may or may not have committed with either of those options, or with even having considered them as options, and uh, panic besets me, because I've gotten to the light where the strip ends and the road splits, up the hill to the right, down the river to the left. And that light is red, and the cars have all passed, and there's a lull in traffic, and all is pleasant and quiet, and in mere seconds she'll be sitting next to me anyway. So I turn my head to accept my fate. Hey, she says. Hey, I reply. And we look at each other for half an instant, and the light turns green, and she goes left, and I go right. Well, now there's no reality to the missed connection story. The way we get hung up on people from a two-word exchange is testament only to the power of the free association machinery in the human cognitive apparatus to have its way every time. They are stories we tell in our heads about people we don't know and will very probably never know, but as I said, I'm a sucker for those kinds of stories. Mike on a Bike Rousher is, like your host, an Oberlin College alum from the class of 2011. Right now, he is lying low in Cleveland with delusions of being a popular scholar of the internet. Our next story this hour is from my father, Jerry Laparoff. Summer of 1974, and I was leaving Rome for a rendezvous in Barcelona. 
Rome had been eventful, though not nearly as rewarding as Tuscany, where I had divided my time between museums and gelateria. But Rome was good too. There was the Colosseum and the fountains and the background of drama to what was happening home and the romance of the city. And then Nixon resigned. The proprietor of the Locanda accosted me in the hall and said, Nixon! And then he drew his hand across his neck in the manner of a guillotine. The streets, it seemed, were full of celebrating Americans. But I had to get going. In any case, too many of my plans for Rome had been thwarted. It seemed as if everything was on strike, even the opera. So, propelled by the good news from home and the mistaken notion that I had plans, I boarded a series of trains which, in what was or seemed like 24 hours of bypassing prime destinations in France, left me in Barcelona. The sequence of events had started some weeks earlier in Brighton, England. I was visiting my friend Mike prior to our trip to Italy, and he was making sure that I understood that Brighton was not Berkeley. Mike and I had become close friends after I first met him at the University of Sussex on a previous visit, and after he and I lived in the same Oakland apartment building when he did a postdoctoral year in Berkeley, during which time we traveled to Mexico and a number of local watering holes. But Mike was quite British in distinguishing Southern England from California, even in the age of Aquarius. There was no nude sunbathing at the beach. Well, there was not much sun to speak of. And you didn't make new friends over broccoli at the greengrocers. It was clearly a British way of thinking. By God, there will always be an England, as the radio hero of my youth, Gene Shepard, used to say. Of course, the international nature of the youth counterculture of the time soon gave the lie to Mike's admonitions. Brighton is advertised as a beach resort, and any number of unsuspecting victims from the continent were standing in perplexity under the steel-gray sky gazing at the rocky expanse of beach. And there was a skinny dipper in the frigid water, glacial no doubt, but somewhat circumspect of returning to dry land and the shoreline of gawkers unaccustomed to such a sight. Later at the laundromat, I assisted a Spanish student in Brighton to study English, who was confused over the coin requirements of the clothes dryer. Though the word was not yet current, she was perky, with short cropped hair and a colorful scarf wrapped around her neck. She was from Alicante. Her name was Anna, and she was somewhat confused by the protocols of British currency. The dryer, as I recall, took the old sixpence, but not the new sixpence. It was centrifugal, and I was soon in the vortex. We took a walk on the beach, such as it was, had dinner, and spent the evening. I was leaving for Italy in the morning, but in some early rendition 
of speed dating, we plan to meet in Barcelona later in the summer. With just a minimum of language between us, I speak not a word of Spanish, we had somehow achieved what seemed to be an instantaneous connection, and our talk about our coming travels was convincing and enthusiastic. We were going to spend some time in Barcelona and then head off to Mallorca, an island with which she was intimately familiar. And so during the long train odyssey above the Mediterranean, I was so looking forward to a reunion with my Spanish friend from Brighton, even though we knew one another for less than a single day. In 1974, there were no cell phones. Many young people, including my Spanish friend, did not have private phones. So our communication would have to be by letter. Accordingly, and completely at variance with my normal practice, I had made my hotel reservation in Barcelona ahead of my arrival and had mailed Anna my contact information at that location. Unfortunately, the room turned out to be a bit of a disappointment, even though well-located. Its, its single window was so high up that it required standing on a piece of furniture to see out. My plan had been to spend four days in Barcelona after being joined by Anna on the second. As it turned out, I greatly enjoyed the city. I was then an architecture student, and I must have visited every Gaudi design building in Barcelona. I marveled at the Sagrada Familia and cooled off at Parkwell. But where was Anna? How could so solid a plan have not materialized? After four days, I stayed on. I could not leave the cell-like hotel room because that's where I could be found. I visited everything a second time, a practice that was not necessary then, though it may be now. And I sat out on the Ramblas and consumed more sangria. I can't say that I was having a bad time, but it was not the time I expected. And eventually, I had to just give up and leave. Summer ended. I went home, having abandoned my studies for the year, back to work teaching English and journalism in a high school. One day in October, when I got home from work, there was a letter postmarked Alicante in my mailbox. The letter inside was an apology for not having met me in Barcelona. It explained that Anna had fallen in love, and subsequently out of it, and had been high on the love and the marijuana. And it ended with a bit of philosophy. Whilst one cannot make always the revolution, it said, one must experience all the time the passion, because he who cannot make the love cannot make never the revolution. My father, Jerry Laproth, lives in Berkeley, California with a constant collection of fine cheeses.
Our final story of part one, Missed Connections, from Alyssa Zellinger. I've been dreaming of it lately. I have dreamed of my cousins, and in my dreams, I've been seeing them for years. We know each other, I finally remember, but I still cry in disbelief and joy. I dreamed I was at that beach, and I went to visit the forbidden beach house. It had burned down, leaving rubble. It had been sold. It was haunted by the dead. I know that in real life, the beach house may not have burned, but it did take damage from Hurricane Sandy. I don't know who owns it now, though I have my suspicions. I know that in real life, I haven't seen my aunt or my two cousins in over ten years. I was 13 then, awkward, feeling ugly, legitimately friendless. I had two cousins, we'll call them Evelyn and Tammy. They were the best friends I had, and I only got to see them at Christmas and during the summer, when we visited my great aunt, my aunt, who is my father's cousin, her husband, and of course my cousins at their beach house. I could tell this story in many ways, and I have before. This time, the story is not exactly about my cousins, or the fact that I don't know them anymore. That even if I contacted them on social networking sites, or strangers with nothing in common. My great aunt, and I'm going to use her real name, was called Mary Lou. Even when I was still a child, my father's parents had passed on, and she was the only elder left on my dad's side of the family. She and my dad would sit exchanging stories about their common blood. I was too young to really appreciate this, from a tiny thing up to a socially stunted 13-year-old. I've always been behind socially. For me, hanging out with my younger cousin Evelyn and even younger cousin Tammy felt natural. They were my friends, and we shared jokes together, sang along to music together, especially the Spice Girls. When their father thanked me for babysitting, when the adult said I was being responsible, I was confused or I laughed it off. I wasn't the babysitter, I was one of the kids. Back to my great aunt for a moment. She was getting old. She was moving towards moving in with her daughter, but her mind was still sharp. She read lots of biographies of historical figures. She had a black cat named Merlin, and she worked at the local historical society. She liked lighthouses and elephants and elephant ears, which are a kind of pastry. For her birthday, I made her an art piece of wooden things glued together, painted like the sea, with a lighthouse and with a cloud shaped like an elephant. I gave that to her the last week I saw her. I hope she wasn't too sad when she looked at it afterward. She knew all sorts of things, had all sorts of stories to tell, that I was too young or too shy to ask for. 
I remember particularly that she would often say, Oh, Lordy. The week it happened, I still thought I was one of the kids. My cousins had a friend to the beach who I was having some trouble getting along with, mostly by accident. We were eating outside fresh corn with butter at the plastic picnic table, just as kids. The adults were inside with the window open. Well, my cousin's friend brought up religion. My cousin's family, and their friend too, were religious Christians of some sort I can't quite remember. Maybe Catholic? And it should be noted that I was raised Jewish. So their friend said something about how the Jews killed Jesus, quote-unquote. I knew this was bad news. I decided to distract everyone by declaring a food fight. Then my cousin, Tammy, poured her soda on my new sneakers. I was shocked. She giggled and did it again. I lost track of myself and pushed her over in her chair. The adults ran outside. My father slapped me across the face. I hid behind a van and cried. Then for the first time, my glasses missing, I don't remember what happened to them. I walked down the street to the beach alone. I sat in the sand and cried. I knew something was over, that I had ruined everything. I knew then, somehow. My mother and aunt appeared at the top of the dunes, talking quietly, keeping an eye on me. My aunt reassured me that it was okay. I was calmed out of my tears. When we got back to the beach house, Great Aunt Mary Lou was at the screen door. No one blames you, she told me. But their father did. My dad would tell me years later that his cousin's husband wasn't the best man, that there'd been some abuse, I can't say how much, and that he'd often force his wife into life decisions regardless of her opinion, that she'd cried to my father before. After we left the beach, we were up to Vermont for a wedding. It was a wedding for two women, my first wedding, in fact, and I remember cheering up, staying at an inn, eating maple candy for the first time, and when we got home, there was a letter. It was from them, and it said they didn't feel safe having me around their children anymore. It was essentially a letter that said, We don't want to see you anymore, any of you. And it was signed by my aunt's husband, and by my aunt, and in shaky script by my great aunt. Because she was old, and this fiasco was too much dressed for her to fight at her age. I can't blame her. I only blame one person, and you can probably guess who. My dad lost his family that day. I lost things too, and though I cried and dreamed for days and weeks and months, I didn't realize then just how much. The entire situation occupied my thoughts a lot in my teenage years. I thought often of how I would contact my cousins again, and when I started college, I saw my dad's pain again and wondered if I could fix things somehow. 
I contacted my cousin Evelyn on a social network, but nothing came of it. I always thought I would see them again. I thought, if nothing else, I would see them at my great aunt's funeral. I hoped it wouldn't have to come to that. The day before I took a bus up to New York to go apartment hunting, we found out my great aunt had passed away and we had missed the funeral. Part of the family that had called my dad to let us know had called his work number over the weekend and they left a message. And my dad had only gotten it when it was too late to attend. So that week I lay in an unfamiliar bed and wept for someone I should have known better. When she died, I learned of a kind of hurt that never goes away, of torn connections made final by death. I would have liked to know her better, and for her to have known me. Alyssa Zellinger is an Oberlin College graduate from the class of 2010. She lives in Delaware. This brings us to part two of our hour, From the Cutting Room Floor, stories that didn't make it onto the show. Our first story is from Kristen Anderson, which she recorded shortly after recording the story which did air in episode six, Mistakes. Hi, my name is Kristen. I just recorded that shale incident. And I'm out here at my sit spot right now. A sit spot, it's just a place um, where anyone can find in in nature and they just go sit for, I don't know, 20 minutes. I've been here about about 30 minutes and observe. And it's crazy how just this tiny little corner of woods in Oberlin behind a road and a water tower, it feels like a national park sometimes. And right now I'm watching the snow fall. It's very quiet. Well, I hear some birds making a ruckus over there. I don't know if you can hear that. And if I look over to my left, I see a uthiki, which I know is a praying mantis egg case. It's big and gray. And I'm not sure if it's hatched or not. I don't know if they overwinter, but it looks pretty cool. As I walked in here, I saw deer tracks. So I've kind of been waiting to see if they'll come by again, but I haven't seen it yet. And I think it's a mistake for anyone to not have a spot like this. I, I know everyone has one. When they were a kid, when everyone was a kid, they had a little spot they'd go. Maybe it was just, you know, a spot in their room or a tree that they would climb. I had an awesome little cave a little bit down the road from my backyard and I would go make believe there and sit there 
look out. I used to live in the desert, so I'd look out at this beautiful desert scenery. And here I just chose this little spot because, well, because I saw the deer tracks, actually. Um, and they say that if you want any answer to a deep question, like, why am I here, or how, what is good, how can I be, like, the best person I can be, then you have to go to a place and use that place as your teacher, because every place is a teacher, if it's natural. So yeah, I think everyone should have a sit spot. And the best sit spot is a place in nature which you will go to every day. That's, that's the rule. You have to go there for it to work. And you have to go there in the morning, in the evening. Not like every day, but just, I mean, I come here every week. And all different seasons, you have to really know the spot, know the different directions, know the animals that live there. Um, know what kind of trees live there. Or maybe just know individual trees, what they look like, what they feel like. And finally, you will get the answers to your questions. Kristen Anderson is an Oberlin College senior living in Seed House this year. She is majoring in biology and environmental studies. This old parking lot with a six-pack of Mexican beer. Yeah, and you're finally here. And you're finally here. We sprawl on the hood and drink more than we should and watch clouds in the distance collide, how they join and divide. Just half a day, I'll be flying away with the 21st Regiment B over the sea. Our final story this hour is another story from Hillary Carter, who has submitted a story to every episode of the second page, of which all but one have aired. That story, omitted from episode 7, Language, follows. One day I heard a boy in my fifth grade class call another boy a word I hadn't heard before. I can't say the word, but it's a five-letter word and it starts with a D and ends in O. The recipient of the insult clearly hadn't heard it either. What does that mean? The first boy could hardly contain his pride at knowing a dirty word his friend didn't know. It means a fake... and then he used a slang term for penis. Huh, I thought. Good to know. It never occurred to me to ponder what such an object would look like or why anyone would need one. I would not learn that until later. When school ended that year, I went to piano camp as I did every year. It was kind of like band camp, except it was all people playing duets on pianos. Two people to each piano, multiple pianos on stage. We were grouped by ability level. It was only three and a half days because you learned the music before you got there and just practiced playing as an ensemble. Unfortunately, this year one of the boys in my group had it out for me. In retrospect, I think Cameron was trying to impress two of the other girls in our group because whenever he'd whisper my name or poke me, they would giggle appreciatively. 
I dealt with a lot of bullies in the past year. When I wanted to play tag with the popular girls at school, they had decided that I could only play with them every other day. They got in trouble for this one day when I complained to the teacher that it was my day to play and they wouldn't let me. Another time, I had correctly answered my teacher's question about an eight-legged parasite. Ticks, I said proudly. A boy in my class loudly whispered an obscene word that sounded like my answer. Not having heard him, I continued, They give you Lyme disease! The entire class erupted in laughter. That same boy liked to sing a song he'd made up called Hillary Dillery Dork, which replaced the words to the nursery rhyme with obscene lyrics about me. And finally, the popular girls had dared the boy I had a crush on to come up to me and say, I need you, woman! Which had utterly perplexed me. So by the time I got to piano camp, I had had enough. The final straw came at our final performance for our parents. We were sitting in the audience, waiting for our turn to perform, when a piece of wet, chewed gum landed in my hair. So the next time he whispered my name, I loudly whispered back, Shut up, fake penis! Except, you know, I said the word. I could hear his little girlfriend's gasp. I guess they must have known what it meant, or at least that it was a bad word. I sat very still in my seat, waiting to be in trouble. But none of the teachers came up to me, and my parents didn't come up to me. Nobody else had heard it. And it was like a magic word. He didn't bother me again for the rest of the night. We went on stage and performed our pieces. The conductor seemed pleased. My parents hugged me after the show, seemingly unaware I had said this terrible word. I never saw Cameron again. There were no consequences. In the next couple of years throughout the torture of middle school, I never found myself using that word again. Most of my bullies were at school and I was scared of getting in trouble. But I think it helped that I had this one memory to cling to of one time that I had gotten the better of one of these bullies. Whatever guy was making my life miserable now, maybe someday, you know, years later, when I was older and successful and not awkward, I would see him again. And I wouldn't even have to say anything. He'd just know that I was pretty awesome. And deep down, he was nothing but a fake penis. That's it for this week's episode of The Second Page. Thanks to all of our storytellers. Thanks to Hillary, Lucy, Mike, Jerry, Alyssa, and Kristen. Thanks to WOBC for putting us on the air. And thanks to you for listening. If you like the music we used in this episode, you can look up the artists on our website, makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. On our website, you can also listen to this episode again and past episodes, as well as submit your own stories for future episodes. Next week's theme is background noise, and along with stories, I'm collecting any recordings of noises you may have. 
Once again, our website is makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. This has been The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Overland College and Community Radio. I'm Harris Laparoff. I'll be back next week with stories about background noise.